back to John, um, Lord willing, next week. We were in chapter 18 of 2 Kings, and we met a godly king named Hezekiah. And there were only a handful of godly kings. David's descendants were not very good at being godly. Of all the kings for hundreds of years after him, almost every one of them were wicked. In fact, it was common at the very first, as the the book of the kings essentially is a biography of each king, one to the next to the next. And as the next king, or one king ends his reign and the next king becomes king, the Bible gives a little commentary on what they did, what they accomplished, who they were, and whether or not they knew the Lord. And nearly every one of the kings were more wicked than their parents, more wicked than their father. That that is something that is amazing about humans. A human has the same genes as their parents. They look like them. You can see, you can see families where they all look like a bunch of bananas. Every single one of them look the same because they're, they're genetically the same. Then you have this, the spiritual descendancy which is that mankind, as they've decided to go away from God, becomes increasingly more wicked. And so it's, it's interesting that as a wicked man holding their child, you can almost bet that that child will be more wicked than you. And that is an amazing rebuke of mankind because what's happened is it's the benefits of a godly heritage can't be underestimated. The fact that you've simply lived in front of God, in front of your children, is the biggest teaching that your children will ever know. For a man to love his wife in front of their children is the biggest teaching that child will ever know. It will beat anything they learn by their friends or in their schools or on the net or wherever kids learn, wherever. But when you see someone being wicked, you want to outdo it. There's something about a man that wants to outdo the wickedness of the past. But God is gracious, and this was God's people. And there were times of of visitation where there were drips of dew from heaven. And there were kings who decided that they were going to do something. Hezekiah was one of them. In fact, we've never seen it like, like that in any of the other kings. Other than David, you'll see that God was with Hezekiah that God was with him, and that he totally uh, vanquished the Philistines, completely defeated them, that God allowed him to have victories. But we're also going to see that a spiritual person who's growing in strength spiritually does so because God has put them through school. And a school in Jesus' school is a hard school to pass because your, your bent is towards yourself being king, not towards God being king not towards Jesus Christ as being your king. Your bent is to always promote yourself, always to spin things so that you look good in other people's eyes. And so Hezekiah wasn't in glory yet. And there were times that Hezekiah, as he sees the world accost him and as he's attacked, he fatigues. And so last week we looked at Hezekiah. What is a Christian like when he's attacked? That's what we looked at at the thing. And we went up through 1 Kings uh, chapter 18, or 2 Kings 18, all the way to verse 16. So we're going to kind of take a running jump and move from 16 on. And we're going to look now at his opposition. So the king of Assyria has attacked Jerusalem. We're going to see that eight years before, 
the king of the previous king of Assyria, the father of the of the current king of Assyria, attacked Israel, the top northern ten kingdoms, and because of their sin, God sent them into exile, completely let them to where they were not in their house, they weren't in their homes anymore. God executed judgment on his people. And then, and they were still cocky, these Assyrians, and they attacked most of the people in that neighborhood. They attacked the people in Tyre, they attacked the Phoenicians, they attacked the, 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 the Moabites and all the people around. And then they come in and they, so this is currently, they attack all of the walled cities of, of, of uh, Israel and haul them off to exile. And Hezekiah is in the capital city in Jerusalem, and they're the only city that's not fallen. So here comes the king, and he is completely, every single person in the country is gone. It wasn't the exile of Babylon. That's going to be later. That's, that comes about 100 years later when God basically has said, I must, in order to be righteous, um, discipline you. And I'm going to discipline you in a foreign land by foreign people, by people who hate me. They're going to be my servants. So here's the Assyrians still, and the Assyrians have completely surrounded Jerusalem. And Hezekiah doesn't know what to do. And we saw at the end of last week that Hezekiah was so stupefied that he pulled the gold off of the temple doors. He took every penny out of his own treasury. He took every penny out of the temple. He took every treasure out of the house of God, and he sent it to the king of Assyria. All right? So as we're in 2 Kings 18, we're now in verse 17. This is what happens now. So you've given the bully your milk money. What happens tomorrow? Is he your friend now? Anybody that's given your milk money away think, oh, well, he'll be my friend now because I gave him my milk money. I, I don't know at the moment why that sounds like such a great idea. It does sound like a great idea because it gets you out of the trouble at the very second. But often it's the, out of the frying pan and into the fire. And that's what Hezekiah has brought upon himself. Verse 17, 2 Kings 18. And the king of Assyria sent Tartan and Rabsaris and Rebshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah with a great host unto Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. That's the very next verse. He gives him the gold off the doors. And the king of Assyria is like, thank you very much. That saves me from having to collect all the gold as I walk over the dead bodies that I'm about to, to have in your capital. And so you realize that it, it's interesting. You can cling to Christ. Now, here's a, a very, very strong statement. I wrote it in red. You can cling to Christ, and the Assyrian can still come. That's something we must know. You have to know that. If you don't know that, you will blame God when your life is not what you want it to be. You have to realize that God can be with you, that God can be yours and you can be his, and your eternity is safe and secure, and he will move heaven and earth for his own. There's none that can pluck you out of his hand, none. But at the same time, it can also be his will that the, that the Assyrians can still come. And if you know that, if you know that that's the way it is, then when you see it happening, you do not doubt God's goodness because that is, we're so prone, because we're so wobbly, we need so many things. We're such needy people that whenever we think that things are not happening the way we've been told that they should happen, 
we immediately doubt that we're being held. We immediately doubt that God's even good or that God has anything at all to do with us. We doubt our salvation. We'll think, well, God will protect his own, but I must not be his own because look at the outside of my house. It's surrounded by Assyrians. And we we must know that that is not an evidence of God's hatred of us or even his displeasure or even that we've sinned. There's no sin of Hezekiah that brought it on. Now we see that according to the law of Moses, if you obey this law, you will always be the lender and never the borrower. You will always be the leader and never the follower. You will always be the one who gives and never takes because I will bless you so much so abundantly. But if you if you fall away from me and you reject me, then you'll always be the one that's chased. Ten people will chase a thousand. You'll run from your own shadow because you are afraid, because I will curse you. And God, God has said that. Now, isn't it wonderful that we do not live by the law of Moses, that the law of Moses does not hang over our heads? The law of Moses, which is God's very character, has nothing to do with us. I promise that ever since that Jesus saved my soul, I look into the law of Moses and I want to do it. I want to do the very things that would bring pleasure to God. I want to be that kind of person that has the character that is like God's character. I want to live it out, but I'm not cursed when I don't because that curse fell on Jesus Christ. He was cursed, and we are not, because he lived the law of Moses in his very soul, loving God with all of his heart, soul, strength, and mind, and then was punished for our iniquities. So we are free, but these people were still in that contingency, and they had forgotten God, and there, was, there were so many wicked kings, one after the other after another, that did unspeakable, horrible things. We looked at Hezekiah's own father, so wicked, made his sons pass through fire so that he could get blessings from from idols. And you're realizing that God would not be God if he did not judge that. God would not be God if he does not judge our country. God would not be God. And if you see the Assyrians at our gates, trust the Lord. And realize that he is good enough to discipline. He's good enough to judge. He's good enough. Do you remember Jesus said, which father among you would give a serpent to your son if he asked for bread? He's saying you're bad and you're, you're good enough to give good things to your children. How much more can you trust God? But you have to realize God is good enough to give me a snake when I ask for bread. He is good enough. He is so good that when he does this, it is for my best. It is for, it's so that I will trust him. It's so that I will be ready to meet him when, I, when he comes. This John that we're studying through the book of John, when he writes in his letters later, there will be a day when you will hear his coming and some on earth will love it. And it's interesting that that's a play in, in, the, in the language it was written in, the words rhyme, the idea of his coming and loving it sound like each other. So it almost is something that you could think about all the time. It's almost like a saying that would get caught in your head. To be to love his appearing is what a child of God does. And how do you love his appearing? 
It's that God weans you from this world. He weans you from your idols. He makes you throw them into the, into the cave with, with the bat poop. That's how he does it. Because you recognize that all of the goalie things that you have wanted all of your life is worthless in what God would give you. And God is good enough to give us a snake. And there's, there are times that the Assyrians can be at your door and it can be God's judgment on your neighbors at the same moment that it's God's blessing upon you. It does not mean that it's going to be good for you all the time. Your life can have lots of tears, lots of tears, but also lots of joy. Joy unspeakable and full of glory that is un, unexplainable. That how in the world can you live through your life and be peaceful? Have you ever known a godly person who's a very old age? Godly, and you know they're godly, and you're just that their last breath and they'll go straight into Jesus' presence. You know it. You're convinced, completely convinced. There is no doubt in your mind that that person is getting more beautiful as their body is falling apart. Their spirit is becoming stronger and more vibrant and more alive. And they just will sing. They'll, start, they'll stop singing here long enough to start singing in glory forever. That person has had a life that most people would never trade with. Because how do you become a godly person? God uses the Assyrians. So let's see. We see in 2 Chronicles. Now remember, Chronicles was written after they came back from Babylon. The 70 years they stayed in Babylon. And they rewrote their history almost like a running start so that they could keep going. And as they were talking about this, we see, uh, this is in verse 9 of chapter 32. After this did Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and his servants to Jerusalem... But himself laid siege against Lachish with all his power with him unto Hezekiah, the king of Judah, unto all the people of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith Sennacherib, king of Assyria, whereupon you trust that you abide in siege in Jerusalem, doth not Hezekiah persuade you to give over yourself to die by famine and thirst, saying that the Lord shall deliver us out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Hath not the Lord your God, uh, has the same Hezekiah taken away the high places and the altars and commanded Judah and Jerusalem, saying, You shall worship before one altar and burn incense upon it? Now, as you look at that verse, I want to show you the enemy's playbook. How does the devil use, how does the devil work? Okay, remember when, when Paul was writing to the Corinthians and he said, don't be deceived. We know the deceptions of the devil. We know, his, we know how he works. We know how he operates. We already know it, so we know what to anticipate. Well, what would the devil do? I see that from this passage, I can see how does the devil work in our lives? And how do we, uh, how do we defeat him, right? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You resist the devil by knowing his tricks, and you're not fooled by those tricks. The, hey, look over there, doesn't work over and over again, unless you're absolutely out of your mind, okay? Eventually, you, you realize what they're going to do, and if you've seen the devil work before, you can't get tricked over and over by the same trick. So the first thing that I see from the Second Chronicles, now this is the same event that happened in, in 17, where he brings the army to Jerusalem, and they're completely round. So this first event in, in Chronicles adds a little bit of information, and he's telling the people on the wall, he comes up to the gates, of course the army is around the gates, there's people on the gates watching the army, and he's shouting to the people on the gates, don't listen to the king of Assyria, or don't listen to the king Hezekiah, who said that we're not going to conquer you. Don't listen to your king, of course we're going to conquer you, we're going to annihilate you. 
And isn't this the same Hezekiah that put away the high places and altars and commanded Judah and Jerusalem saying, you shall worship before one altar and burn incense on it? Here's the first thing I wrote down. Do you realize Hezekiah pulled down the high places for, of idols? He didn't pull down the worship of God. He reinstated the worship of God. But the enemy came in to tell the idiots that were on the wall that didn't know very much, who don't have a deep relationship with God, and confuse them that somehow King Hezekiah has actually diminished religion in his, in his country, and therefore they can't trust him anyway. Why would you put trust in a king who pulled down the very worship centers of your country? That's what he's saying. Now, of course, you can't blame the king of Assyria for not knowing his theology. He's wicked. He doesn't know God at all. Pharaoh didn't know God. Who is this God that I should worship him? Who is this God that I should listen to him at all? The king of Assyria does not know God. And so he, and he knows that these reforms that Hezekiah had made must just simply be that he's trying to get people to be all Jerusalem-centered so that he can be in control, because that's what he would have done. So he's blaming Hezekiah, and he's confusing the people. So I wrote this down. Enemy's playbook, number one, according to this verse, scare those who depend upon you and who don't know God as well as you do. Scare them. Then as they appeal to you, their fear will melt your heart and make you afraid. Have you ever been afraid by someone who's afraid, who's looking to you, and you're the guy who's trying to protect everybody? It makes fear because you're realizing just how important it is. That's the first thing I see. And then use misunderstood truth to confuse and deceive them. That's why you must be in your Bible. You cannot ignore your Bible. Otherwise, you're ignorant. There's misunderstood truth. The truth that God wants for us is that truth that will give you backbone and spine. It'll, get, it'll make you do when you must do. But if you don't know it, then anything could be possible. Anything that anybody would have told you in the past, anything that people would have told you, do you think you've ever heard false theology in your life by well-meaning people who didn't know straight up? Absolutely. People tell you wrong things about God continuously. And that is why that when you have a, when you have a preacher, your Bible is open on your lap checking every single thing that that, that man says. You can't simply take anything for granted. You must be like the Bereans, check point by point by point. Does God say this? Is this what God says? Or is this a perversion of what God says? You pick your teachers well. You don't listen to anybody on the television. It doesn't work that way because you're foolish if you do that. You check and you study and you should study to show yourself approved. And when you know what it is, then nobody can misunderstand deceive you by, by misunderstanding of your truth, because that's the enemy's job. He takes that little bit that you know. Don't forget, there's a little bit of, there has to be corn in the rat poison. There has to be. There's always truth in every error. Every, every um, cult that there is in this world has a little bit of truth in it, otherwise it wouldn't have snookered people in. So don't say, well, that sounds like true to me, because true to me with 10 false things beside it is false. You've taken truth and you've perverted it. You've made it wicked, like an oak branch that's wicked. That's what wicked means. So that's the first thing I wrote down. This is back to chapter 18. This is verse 29. Thus saith the king, let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not deliver you out of my hand, neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, the Lord shall surely deliver us, and this city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. 
So this is that same speech. Sennacherib is yelling at the people on the wall. Don't tell him to trust in the Lord. Don't say that. Don't listen to Hezekiah when he says, God's going to save us. All right. Don't listen to him because people are not going to know for sure if God's going to save them. I don't know what it is about a believer, a believer who knows they've been forgiven, who knows that they know that they know. There is a, there's a sweetness in their life, even in the midst of chaos. There is a, there's a level steadiness that God allows his children to know. It's that peace that passes all understanding, that guards your hearts and minds. In Christ Jesus, that's where it guards it. So I wrote down, enemy's playbook, number two, according to this passage, you threaten, you intimidate, and you make people doubt the strength of the God that they're, that they're relying on because they're not sure in their very mind whether they really are depending on. You cannot wait until a crisis moment in someone else's life before you then share the gospel. You share the gospel with people during happy, bright days so that it solidifies, so that it becomes real, so that it becomes root. And then that root grew in that oak tree for a 100 years before the hurricane hit it. Otherwise, it would topple. That hurricane can blow with all the fierceness that it has, and that root is so deep that that tree stands firm. You get firm by a long time with the Lord. Then when the earth is shaken and the mountains are falling into the ocean and the, and the planets are screaming fireballs through the sky, your peace even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. There is no fear. Suddenly you realize, oh my goodness, it's not the mountains I'm afraid of. It's not the, the, the meteors that I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that any moment I'm going to see the holy God and I'm going to stand in judgment in front of him and he will be the standard that I'm judged on. That's the fear. And a Christian has no fear. When you realize who you're truly afraid of, when you realize that your friend is your judge, there's no fear. Let the mountains fall. Let the mountains fall. Let the planets fall. What a show. Who wouldn't pay money to see it? It, it's, it, it would be, it's not a joy because that's still terrifying. It would be terrifying. But at the same time, to know that even in the midst of that, God's got you. That is a peace that God gives to his children. And when you, can, when you threaten and intimidate, what you're doing is you're threatening and intimidating all of the fluff. All of the fluff. Do you want as many people that was in this building in 1952... Do you want the floors creaking with people? In some ways, I do. I do, because you can sit under the gospel, and the gospel can change people. And if you don't hear the gospel for years and years and years, you'll never change. It's the gospel that can reach you. But if you have a place where there is no gospel being presented, when there's no righteousness being thundered, and the place is full of people with their hands in the air, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. It's just more people together for no reason to be wicked together. Don't think that there are not churches of 5,000 people and 40,000 people all meeting that have nothing to do with the God of heaven and earth. It's not about numbers. It's about changed lives. And a changed life has rest in the midst of the storm because you're in the hollow of God's hand. That's what's happening. So adversity can shake a believer's faith, but whatever's left standing is what's true. This is from Hebrews chapter 12. 
See that you refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall we not escape, we who turned away from speaking from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of things that are shaken, of the things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Did that dawn on you at all? God shakes your tree so that all of the broken stuff falls, so that you don't rely on the things that are not true. The only thing that stands are the things that are true, and when those things are stand, you can stand on it. All the broken boards fall away, and now you know not to step there, and you step only on the thing that will last you all the way to eternity. You can swing out into eternity on the absolute assurance of God's true character, not the, not the fantasy that everybody is trying to portray God as, but the real. And now his word is truth. Your word is truth, Jesus called, said to God. So as you know it, you can know it now. It's not something you have to figure out only in adversity. But when there is adversity in your life, it's actually to your good because now you know what to truly depend upon. You know what rocks are slippy and what rocks are not. I was fishing in the Greenbrier and we were walking on the rocks fishing from inside the river, and I said, Dad, this rock is moving back and forth. And he said, really? We'll move to a different rock. And I said, I'm not sure. I'm not even sure it is a rock. I was standing on a snapping turtle for an hour. And I said, he, I said it kind of feels like a turtle shell. And he said, you're standing on a snapping turtle. If you move, he'll, he'll, he will bite you on the leg. Why don't you start swimming really fast? So I just started swimming really fast, and he stuck a stick down, and that snapping turtle was as big as a Toyota. It was just, I was standing on its back. So when God shakes you with adversity, it's not so that he hates you, though that might be the first thought of a weak person. It's instead so that you'll stand on something that will last and not something that will move. That's what he does. This is back to 2 Kings eighteen thirty-one. Hearken not to Hezekiah, Make an agreement with me by a present. Come to me, and then every man shall eat of his own vine. Every man will drink of his, eat of his own fig tree, and every one drink of his own water of his own cistern. Until I come to you and take you away to a your own to a land like your own land, a land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive oil and honey, that you may live and not die. And hearken not unto Hezekiah when he persuades you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. You see the playbook now? I mean, it's almost like, give me. Once I've set this up, you could easily write this out. What is the enemy's playbook here? This is what I wrote down. Make sweet-sounding promises. Very sounding a lot like God's word. Very much. Remember the land of, of milk and honey and, the, and your own vine and you'll sit at peace? Every one of those are phrases from the law of Moses. Every one of those. And I will take you away and you'll not own anything and you'll love it. I mean, really, that's exactly what people do. You make it sound sweet, you make it sound convincing, and you lull them to sleep, and at the same time promising a gilded cage for them to live in. That's what the enemy does. The enemy came to steal and kill and to destroy. Jesus came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. This is 33. Ask any of the gods of the nations that delivered you out of the hand of the king of Assyria? 
Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sephaim and Hena and Eva? Have they not delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who are they among the gods of the countries? And have they delivered the country out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Note that he mentioned Samaria. He assumed, since Samaria was Israel, that that's the same God that Jerusalem is worshiping, not realizing that, that the people in Samaria were taken away as God's punishment on them because they went away from him. He just said, the same God that you're claiming is going to get, did he save them when I came in and destroyed the, the, the Samarians? The answer, of course, would be no except that he's in doubt too, and only people would know that these people were not uh, serving God. The woman at the well whose descendants from these people, she didn't know who the true God was. She was completely confused because it was a mishmash, weirdo kind of a amalgamation religion that had nothing to do with serving God. There was no purity at all. Okay, So I just wrote down playbook. Look at everybody around you. They're all mine. So you must be mine too. Only a weak person would fall for that. A person who has that peace beyond understanding was like, I'm sorry, Jesus bought me. I'm just as wicked as you. I know I'm just as wicked as you. I'm not claiming to be better. I'm not claiming to be better. I'm, in fact, when I sin against God, I break God's heart way more than a, than a heathen. A heathen sinner and me sinning, I am stabbing God in the heart with a knife. Because he's my savior, how could I betray him like I am? So I'm not disagreeing, but he's saying, these are all mine and you're mine. That's a lie. It's not true. Get behind me, Satan. That's not true. Jesus died for me on Calvary. That's not true. That's all I have today. That's my only argument. My only plea is that Jesus died and he died for me. That's my only argument. It's not that I'm good. It's not that, well, I was bad, but now I'm good now. That is no argument that will hold you up. It is only that Jesus died, and he said that I may come to him, and I've come to him. I'm safe. That's it. It's over. It's forever. And it's, it's absolutely will hold you when you need to be helped. So, thus came Elikim, some Hilkiah over the household, and Shebna, and the recorder, and their clothes rent. And they brought a letter. So they bring the letter to Hezekiah, and the letter is raving and raging. And Hezekiah smiles because it's all in print. It's not someone shouting at the wall. He gave him a letter. The devil overplayed his hand. And he gave him a letter and said, this is what I'm going to do. And so what does Hezekiah do? He goes to the temple, and he spreads out the letter in front of God. And he said, read this, God. And defend yourself. It's against you that they're railing. It's against you that they hate. I am just the king, but you are God Almighty. And God said, you have nothing to worry about. I'll fight their battle. And so they go out the next day, and the battle's supposed to start in the morning. And when they all wake up, there's 200,000 men dead in their tents. What would you do as the, as the general? When all, all of your tents, full of the army that you're about to attack with, are all dead in their tents. I need to go home now. I need to go home now. I think I need to go home. My mom's calling me. So he goes home. And he's in his temple. 
worshiping Nishbot or whatever his god was. And the crown prince comes up with a dagger under his left shoulder and plunges it right in his ribs, and there's a new king of Assyria. I just want you to know that God delivers you, but he delivers you through the judgment that may be other people's judgment, but not yours. To you, it's a lesson in God's school, and you know that if those lessons are yours, you are now one of the graduate students where God is working in greatly so that you can be used in your generation. Does that give you hope? It gives me hope. Hallelujah. Thank the Lord.